This is a continuation of the introduction that we had for the study in Genesis. And uh, last week we covered several pages and then I carved out uh, some pages six and seven and uh, some of the latter pages because I wanted to focus particular attention on the importance of rightly interpreting, rightly understanding the opening chapters of Genesis. And to that end, I'm going to ask you to follow with me over to page six of the notes. And as you're turning there, I'm going to reference a few books that may be of interest to you. Uh, One of them is um, a book specifically designed for family worship um, with children ages five through 12, uh, written by uh, Joel Beakey, and it's designed to take you through uh, Genesis and uh, with questions, uh, thought-provoking questions and uh, readings and New Testament counterparts that you can bring attention to as well, and uh, points for reflection, points for prayer, and uh, so it's, it's an excellent work. It's, it's a relatively recent edition, and, and Dr. Beakey has been one that has really had a, uh, uh, a good influence in the church, uh, capital C, in terms of family worship, among many other things. So I, I commend this to you, especially those with children. There are two other books that I have, and one of them is a collection of messages by folks at the Master's Seminary and the Master's College and it's edited by Abner Chow, uh, a good friend of Jeff's, uh, What Happened in the Garden, and I'll be referencing that a little bit later. And then another book um, written by a friend of mine who's now at Greenville Seminary. He was at Puritan Seminary for a number of years, but recently moved to um, Greenville Seminary, The Quest for the Historical Adam. These are two books, and they're, they're not the only two books, but they are. these are two books that emphasize very clearly the importance of taking uh, these opening chapters at face value, a plain and straightforward reading of the text. Uh, Sometimes I'll use the term literal, but that has connotations to various people that may mean something other than what I'm intending. Uh, So by literal, I'm talking about how would a, a reader approach this text with no predispositions to the contrary. And and what happens when people are reading these opening chapters of Genesis, and it's been both encouraging and very discouraging, as I've reflected on this subject over the last few weeks, it's encouraging to to know that there are men and women uh, that are handling the text very carefully. And it's discouraging to see a, a great number of academicians, pastors, teachers, that when it comes to creation, they're just all over the map. And in many cases, they take a very nuanced position, and I'll describe some of those positions, and then they will not tell you what their conviction is. They'll sort of leave that up to you, but they'll name three or four different points of view. And um, when it comes to understanding the text, uh, there's not three or four valid points of view. There's one valid point of view, and that's what God has designed to be communicated to us. So I will simply read an excerpt from some friends of mine at Greenville Seminary called Six Days or Six Days. All of their faculty are required uh, annually to affirm in writing uh, that they hold to normal creation days. And it's, it's a long document, and it's very well written. Uh, but it makes the point 
The first point is we believe that God's word is not only inerrant, but it is also clear to the learned and the unlearned alike. We affirm that when God reveals his mind on creation or any other matter, he's quite capable of making his will known in ordinary language that does not require extraordinary hermeneutical maneuvers for interpretation. Do you, you follow what they're saying? An ordinary person without an MDiv or a THM or a PhD or an MA, as the case may be, and all of those are worthy credentials, of course, but an ordinary person with the aid of the Holy Spirit, of course, the ministry of illumination, should be able to understand the scriptures because it was written for ordinary people and they understood it exactly as it was written. Um, so it goes on and on. There's several pages. It's a 12-page document, but the preamble to this, I thought, was very important, and that is that when someone has to engage in what he, they refer, and I think it's accurate, as extraordinary hermeneutical maneuvers, hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting the scriptures to arrive at a particular conclusion that normally you wouldn't arrive at with a plain reading of the text, then you probably need to go back and re-examine what, what you were saying to begin with. Um, so I, I share that with you, six days or six days by uh, Greenville Seminary. And fortunately, it's, they're not the only seminary that holds to this point of view. Masters holds to this point of view. There literally, I think, are a half a dozen uh, universities today, um, maybe a few more, but not many, um, that hold ordinary creation days. Um, the prevailing mindset is that the days could be um, eons, uh, the days could be uh, some poetic construct, uh, the days could accommodate theistic evolution, or the days could be ordinary creation days. And any of those four are considered within the pale of orthodoxy as they define it, and that's very unfortunate. Um, I was listening to uh, a pastor this week, someone whose name you would recognize, and the question was, What's your view on the importance of understanding and teaching the days of creation? And the answer that this particular pastor gave, and he has a national reputation, was that, and the good news is that Adam forward is about five to 6,000 years. And that Adam was the, the first created man, came out of the dust of the earth, and his wife Eve came out of his side and was created by, by God. And I'm thinking, amen. But then he went on to say that, but what preceded Adam could be very, very long periods of time, could be thousands, millions of years. And, uh, and so why you would bifurcate the sixth day from the first five days and make the sixth day to be an ordinary day and make the earlier days to be some type of um, eons, um, indeterminate periods of time, literally billions of years in some people's constructs, there's only one reason you would do that, and that's because you're trying to accommodate what is being construed as science. And there are faculty members who don't want to be embarrassed in front of their academic peers. And, and, it's, and, and so the fear of man is, is a snare. Uh, and I, I, I'm using fairly strong language, but there's no reason to accommodate science in, in your understanding of scripture. There literally is no reason whatsoever to look at the scripture and say, what does it mean? And if it's somehow contrary to what the scientific constructs today are saying, then so be it. 
the, we, we believe in sola scriptura. Uh, it's a Reformation doctrine. It, the, the, these other points of view are of relatively recent vintage. Um, the Reformers held to normal creation days. The only one, um, Augustine, held to a, a rather strange point of view was instantaneous creation. All of it happened sort of boom in one, one blink. But that, that's not been viewed as a, an orthodox position by the Reformers. The Reformers all held to ordinary creation days. The, the Westminster Standard divines, the, the men who put together the Westminster Standards, all held to ordinary creation days. And so the, this plethora of other understandings didn't begin strictly with Charles Darwin. It began earlier than that with some of the geologic constructs um, and then trying to understand what those would mean in terms of the age of the earth. But clearly from Charles Darwin on, the degradation of, um, of Christian thinking in terms of ordinary creation days, it just spiraled down. But there are, the good news is that there's, there's a remnant. There are, there are those who take the scriptures at face value and it's not a handful either. There are a number, answers in Genesis I, I recommended to you earlier. I recommend it without equivocation, just a, a solid group of folks. Terry Mortensen is a, a very learned man. He's written some wonderful articles, um, and, uh, and so I, I just share that with you. The two books, Bill Van Dudevard, The Quest for the Historical Adam, which takes a historic point of view, looking at how people have taken these, these things from time to time over the, the views, and then this compendium of articles by folks at Master's college and seminary, um, what happened in the garden, both of them. And there's other good books too, but I, I just share those with you. So on page six, all of what I've just said is a bit of a preamble. Uh, down at the bottom of page six, the stakes are high when interpreting the book of Genesis because Genesis, and we dealt with this last time, is fundamental for the rest of the Bible. Um, I quoted uh, one person last week as saying that the scriptures without Genesis would be a house of cards without a foundation. And that's really true. That's really true. All of the major doctrines that are embraced and taught in the New Testament all find their beginning, no pun intended, in the book of Genesis. That's where you find the, the, the initial constructs that are developed uh, and amplified and explained in the New Testament uh, as well. Uh, to the entire, so it's fundamental to the rest of the Bible, indeed to the entire Christian faith. This next expression, I think, is a good paraphrase for what it means to have a literal understanding of the text, a plain and straightforward reading of the text. I think that's a good way to define what I mean by literal. Leads believers to view Genesis as real, historical, authoritative narrative. And that's exactly, that's an important word because Genesis is history. It's not, uh, it's not a parable. It's not poetry. It's not, it, it has prophetic elements in it, but it's narrative, and, and we need to understand it's, a, it's, it's history. Um, and it, it provides the origin of the universe, biological life, the human race, the being of the nation of Israel, etc. Top of page 7, then you run into this unfortunate word, however. Um, this reading of Genesis contradicts the views of many modern scientists and historians to avoid this conflict. And what is meant there, to avoid this conflict, means... How do I teach the Bible without running into loggerheads with my unsaved academic friends who hold to evolution and some other construct? That's, that's really what that means. They don't want to have that conflict. People have made various proposals, especially concerning the opening chapters of the book. Now, 
first. And there's four, actually four, and I've got a fifth one for you. Some authors say that create does not mean to make something, uh, but to give it a new function. And that's just blatantly incorrect. The word bara is used in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 1, and it literally means to make new, not to reconstruct, not to refashion, not to rehabilitate. Um, it, it literally means to make new. And the subject of, of that word is, is always divine. Uh, it always, it, it, God himself is, is the subject of the verb bara. Uh, so when you read in the beginning, God created, and the word there is bara, it literally means to make new, something that did not exist before. So it, it's not describing something that was refashioned, something that was reconstructed, something that was expanded upon. It means something new. And, and, and God is the antecedent of that because he's the, the one who performs that act. Uh, but when you look at this word, it's used uh, eight times in the book of Genesis. In chapter 1, it occurs three times in verse 1, verse 21, verse 27. It occurs in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It occurs in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It occurs in chapter 6, verse 7, but eight times in the book of Genesis. And in each case, it means exactly that, that God made something new that didn't exist before. Others argue that day, the Hebrew word there is yom, Y-O-M is the way we would spell it, need not indicate an actual day or that early parts of Genesis are a literary framework. That's one of the so-called orthodox points of view. More like symbolic poetry than a historical account. It's fairly easy to identify poetry as a literary genre in the Bible. And when you read Genesis, you, you, you have no predisposition, no bias necessarily. You're just saying, what category would I put this literature in? Without exception, you'd say, this is history. A a plain, straightforward reading would be, this is history. This is a narrative of what's going on. And what is going on is God is creating. uh, He is structuring. uh, He is teaching. He's judging. uh, He's disciplining. uh, He's prophesying. uh, Genesis 3.15 uh, all of those things, uh, it's, it's a description exactly of what God is doing. It's narrative. It's history. Um, but uh, there's a very uh, large, largely conservative denomination that years ago did a uh, special study group on the days of creation. And, uh, and I was really just sitting on pins and needles waiting for the results to come out because I thought, good, they're just going to set all this other stuff aside. And to my great discouragement, they adopted four points of view. One of them is ordinary days. One of them is, the, is um, framework hypothesis, uh, or whatever it is, by Meredith Klein. One of them was analogical days, and I can't remember what the other one was. But in, all of those are considered to be within the pale of orthodoxy. Uh, I was greatly disappointed. I'm disappointed today that that was the outcome of that. Fortunately, not all the churches in this particular denomination hold to that ambiguous point of view. There are a number of churches that say, thank you very much, but I'm going to read the scripture and take it at face value. Um, it, it makes a difference, folks, you know, how we take it. And we'll talk about the implications. Uh, a third one, Adam, uh, some would say, and this is really treacherous, uh, was not literally made by God from the dust, but some ape-like creature. You're probably scratching your head saying, really? And, and, and I'm saying, really? There is a professor... Uh, who has uh, a Ph.D. from MIT, which really doesn't matter when it comes to, to teaching the Bible, uh, but he has a Ph.D. from MIT uh, and advanced degrees in other disciplines as well. 
and it's his view that uh, he, he, he's sort of evasive on what his particular point of view is, but it would not be improbable or unacceptable in his writing for Adam to be a tribal chief of a tribe of hominids. A hominid would be, you've seen these pictures of sort of the Neanderthal man sort of hunched over. And so Adam happened to be the tribal chief of this tribe of hominids, and God said, I'm going to call you Adam. I, I kid you not, that's actually a point of view that's taught in what used to be a really conservative seminary. And it just, it's, it's, it's not conservative. Uh, but it makes a difference how we take Adam as a historic person. Um, fourth, others deny that the seven days are ordinary days and try to put gaps in the week of creation. Um, it's really unfortunate. When I became a new believer, uh, when I became a believer, um, 1971, I think one of the very first Bibles someone gave me was a Schofield Bible. And for the most part, for the most part, it was very helpful. Uh, but if you look at the, the footnotes in, in the Schofield Bible, uh, they take a point of view, at least they did in the earlier versions, I don't know about the ones today, that between, verse, uh, between the first day and the rest of creation were eons of time and that there was an angelic uh, rebellion. This is where Satan apparently fell. And there was this catastrophic implication on earth, and it, and it caused the, the earth to become uh, formless and void. Um, and, and so you, you, it, it was really begun by Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s, but it was popularized by C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Study Bible. And, and it's called the gap theory, and it's, it's not legit. Uh, but it, it, it was an intent to create a, a pocket for millions of years. So that, so that you could have this, this long period of time. And there's no reason to believe that, that what happened was that the earth was made waste and void by an angelic rebellion. Uh, that's, that's eisegesis, uh, to be sure. Um, so a fifth one um, is an ordinary reading of Genesis 6 through 9 would, when you read about the flood, uh, all humanity is going to get wiped out except for Noah and his, his immediate family, right? And, and they're supposed to take animals in pairs and, and clean animals, unclean animals, as the case may be, according to their kind, and put them in the ark, and that God was going to wipe out humanity and, uh, and, and basically repopulate the earth because all the, the thoughts and imaginations of men were evil all the time. And uh, there are those uh, in some fairly widely known names that says it's a regional flood, not a worldwide flood. Why would they say that? Because science apparently doesn't support the, the proposition that the flood was universal in scope. I'm not super bright, but if it was regional, why didn't Noah just relocate? And he had 100 years, by the way, to do this. Why didn't he just move to a different part of, of the, the world? And, and all the animals were in this one region. They didn't exist anywhere else. There's no way on earth, if you look at Genesis 6.13, which talked about the earth is going to be destroyed, that, that, that you would look at it as a regional flood, not a universal flood. The only reason you would come to the proposition that it was regional as opposed to what an ordinary reading would be, which is worldwide, because it's taking out all of humanity, right? Without exception, except for Noah and his immediate family. Those are the only ones that God saved. And it was an act of grace. He was repopulating the earth with one family. And the only reason you would not take that point of view is, is you'd look at, at the geologic columns and you'd say, 
I'm not seeing fossils in this part of the world, and if I was looking for some stratification or fossils, they'd be all over the place, not just in one particular region. Well, how did you arrive at that? Did God tell you that, or, or how did you arrive at that conclusion? And, and that's, I'm sorry, but that's, that's, there's no basis for a regional flood. So the aim of most of these proposals is to accommodate Genesis to theories about the evolution of mankind from simple forms of life and ultimately from inanimate matter. Some of the authors still affirm orthodox Christian beliefs, but their ideas tend to take away many from the biblical faith, and they do. It, it, it undermines the faith of many who look at this. It, it erodes their understanding of Scripture. When I'm saying it takes away the faith, if someone is genuinely saved, they will never defect from the faith. It's impossible for a genuine believer to apostatize. But, but when I say it subverts their faith, it, it, it causes someone who would read the scriptures with integrity and normal fashion to, um, to, to suddenly look at it in some hyperbolic fashion or a mythological fashion or otherwise, and they lose the confidence that they had, and they, so, so they don't interpret the scriptures reasonably. So um, down at the bottom of page 7, the doctrines, and, and there's um, a number of these, eight examples, uh, page 7, that find their basis in the opening chapters of Genesis, the early chapters. Um, one of them is the Trinity. Now, uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, uh, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So you have two persons in the Trinity who are identified God in verse 1, uh, the word is Elohim and the Spirit of God in verse 2. And then in, in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 26, then God uh, said, Let us, plural, make man in our image according to our likeness. Um, it's my personal view that, that this does not unequivocally identify the Trinity. It, it, it identifies that there's more than one person in the Godhead. Uh, because God, Elohim, it's, it's a plural word, um, it, it's, but it's it often used to call it a plural of majesty uh, to show the magnificence of God. Um, so clearly you have uh, Elohim and you have the Spirit of God who's identified as a separate person in the Godhead. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, let us make uh, man in our image, um, etc. Uh, so I think... Personally, it's, it's a bit of a stretch to say this clearly establishes the Trinity, but it clearly establishes the multiplicity of persons within the Godhead as opposed to one person in the Godhead. But what's interesting, of course, and then the follow-up on this point, is that Christ is preeminent over all, and this is where the New Testament fills in the details that were begun in the Old, uh, because in, in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him. This is speaking of Christ, the Word, in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Colossians 1, 16, uh, again, speaking of Jesus Christ, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So clearly, here in the Gospel of John, you have, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God filling out the details on the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. That was, you find its inception in Genesis chapter 1. 
uh, but you have the details uh, spelled out for us in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 16 and following. Uh, so you have the, the fundamental roots of the Trinity um, provided for us uh, in uh, the opening chapters of Genesis and then amplified in the New Testament. And that's the nature of this progressive revelation. It's, there are uh, absolutely true things that are stated because God is true, but, but the information in the Old Testament is not completely comprehensive. That's why we have 66 books and not 39. That's, that's why we've got 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New because you have, that creates the canon, the, the, the standard of Scripture, and in all of its revelation, you have everything you need to know. Secondly, man is made in the image of God, uh, different from animals. And, um, and, so, and at the beginning of creation, and, and it's important that we, that last phrase is so important at the beginning of creation, because in Matthew 19, well, the, the, the Scripture says, have you not read, this is Jesus saying, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And, and Jesus is addressing the question about divorce. And the Pharisees had come to him in Matthew 19, and he uses Genesis 1 to, to found his argument that God created man, male and female, from the beginning of, of all creation. And not subsequently, not later than, uh, but a special creation that God had made. And, and we, there are other examples as well. But here you have Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and then you have Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, that are filling that out. And that's the point that's being made, is that these doctrines find their basis in the opening chapters of Genesis, and then the New Testament, in its counterpart, gives you greater detail, uh, of course. Uh, the first woman uh, made from dust, uh, not made from dust, pardon me, not made from dust, as Adam, but from the side of Adam. This is really important because in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, uh, you've got you know, the, the creation of Adam. And then in chapter 2, um, the scripture says that it was not good that, that Adam would be alone. And so what happened was God brought these animals in front of Adam and, and he was given the prerogative of naming them, was, which was an expression of his dominion over them to name them. And in the process of naming them, he would look at these various animals and said, I don't see any that look like me. Uh, I don't see any of these creatures that look like they could be a partner for me, and, and very appropriately so. And so then what did God do? He took, it, it, the word could be rib, it could mean side. It, it, it's, it's, it could be either of those. But clearly from the side of Adam, um, the woman was made, not from the dust, but literally from Adam, um, from his side as his companion. Uh, to, to be a partner with him and, and made subsequently to Adam. Uh, and so Adam uh, is to exercise authority over Eve, um, which he did not when she brought him the apple. Um, and so he failed in his, in his masculine responsibilities at that point. Um, and all of us fell with him when that took place. Uh, but the fact that Eve was created from Adam after he was created talks to about the dignity of woman. Uh, the companionship that woman is to have to a man literally coming out of his side, um, not under his feet, but from his very side, that it would be a, a companion, a helpmate to him, and, and made subsequently to Adam, and, and man was made first, and, and woman was made second. And, uh, and so there is a, a pattern of authority that is implicit in that. Uh, marriage is defined as one man uh, to one woman. Genesis 2, 23, the Scripture says that... Um, 
you know, the, 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 the man is to, um, the, the two of them are to um, uh, leave father and mother, that they are to cleave, uh, to be joined to each other, to be one flesh. Uh, that's the nature of marriage. Um, one man, one woman, uh, to be joined in a covenant, uh, to be partners for life until death comes and takes one or the other. Uh, and so clearly, uh, to use the parlance of today's world, God created a binary world, uh, two set, two genders, not more than two, two clearly defined genders. Genders are defined at birth, and they're not malleable. They're not fluid. Uh, they are what they are as God has created them. Uh, they're not to be reassigned. They're not to be reimagined. It's not open for discussion. Um, but there's any form, many forms of rebellion. And when you find uh, man resisting God's creation, uh, that's a form of rebellion. And, and there's really no other way to describe it. But that's literally a form of rebellion when we, when we challenge God's creation because we're essentially usurping his role as the creator and, and we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, where, where man looks at all of creation and God has revealed himself, not necessarily in a saving way, but certainly in a way that condemns man because of the light that is given to him. But what did man do? He suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And what did God do? He gave them over to a depraved mind. He gave them over to, to, to lust. He gave them over to degradation. And we find that today. It, literally, it's being played out real time in front of our very faces in our culture and at an accelerating pace, it would, it would so appear. Um, sorrow and death, uh, this uh, next point, come from Satan and Adam's sin. This is, this is an extremely important point, and we'll expand on this as we move along. But if, if Adam had been created subsequent to some uh, earlier series of human-like creatures or human creatures and, and man uh, and God simply cast the mantle, so to speak, on Adam and said, you're Adam and, and I'll create Eve somehow out of your side, um, then you, you have millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years preceding that, and, and certainly in this sequence of hominids, these other creatures from which Adam was allegedly um, created or, or developed, none of them died? Of course they did. You've got millions of years, and of course they died. And, and so the scripture says that death is a consequence of sin. But there was no sin until Genesis 3. Man was created in Genesis 1, and the woman was created as described in Genesis 2, but she was created on the, on the sixth day along with, with Adam. But So you can't have death, physical death, preceding sin because physical death is a consequence of sin. Uh, the wages of sin is death, not only spiritual but physical. Jesus died a physical death. There are those who look at this, this construct, uh, construct of Adam as sort of a... Um, the, the capstone of some evolutionary process of, of human-like creatures or increasingly human-like creatures and, and God simply appointing this particular one as a tribal chief. I, I, I kid you not, that, that is a construct that is being taught in schools today, in seminaries today, um, that's being viewed as, as orthodox. Um, but for that to happen, it, it, and, and you've got... Uh, spiritual death and physical death, uh, both of them, God said, were consequences of violating his law. Both of them. And 
physical death occurred later because Adam lived 900 years or thereabouts, and he didn't die immediately, but spiritually he died right then. He died literally right then. And that's why you have Genesis 3.15 with the promise of the gospel and, and the promise that God would provide a, a means for the deliverance. And that's why God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins because blood atonement uh, was, was necessary to show them the severity of sin, not, a, not as a permanent solution. It was not propitiation. It was not a, a deliverance from the wrath of God. But when God literally clothed them with animal skins, there were, there were death that occurred. There were animals that died and blood was shed, and they were clothed by, by the clothing that God gave them because they were, they were no longer um, comfortable with what they, they were as God has created them. They were ashamed. That's not the way God created them. God didn't create them to be ashamed. Uh, Adam was fearful when God called to him. I was afraid. I heard you walking in the garden. God did not create Adam to be fearful. He created him to have a, a, a close communion with himself, not to be troubling with fear and not to be ashamed. Um, and then you have all of the other illustrations of sin that, that followed from that. So sorrow and death came from, from Adam's sin and as a result of, of being uh, tricked by Satan. I talked to top of page 8. I, I mentioned this just, just a moment ago, but blood sacrifice essential to atone for sin. And this is illustrated, again, by God covering Adam and Eve in their nakedness, uh, not with with, with uh, leaves necessarily, but with the skins of animals. And, and again, death was required, blood atonement. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that, that the shedding of blood is necessary for the atonement for sin. And this was a picture. It was a picture. There are so many times that there are illustrations in the Old Testament that, that are filled out in more detail as the Scripture unfolds. But it's a very clear and vivid picture that someone's got to die because of your sin. Something's got to die. And, and that's why you had the Old Testament uh, sacrifices. Clearly, by the blood of bulls and goats, there, there was no permanent removal of sin. That's why they were repeated over and over and over. That's why the, the priests had to, to, to offer sacrifices not only for the people but for themselves because there was no way to ultimately expiate sin except through the blood of Christ. But all of these precursors, the, the God providing uh, a clothing from an, ad, from an animal, and then the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed forward, of course, uh, to the permanent solution, the, the, the Messiah who would come. It was predicted in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the, of the Satan, the, the serpent himself. So blood sacrifice necessary. The worldwide flood, I, I mentioned this to you just uh, earlier, um, but uh, it, it, it points about complete devastation. And, and interestingly enough, the word that, that is used for flood in, in Genesis 6 through 9 is, is a word from which we get the word cataclysm. Uh, there are other words that could have been used for a regional flood, uh, but cataclysm is not one of them. Uh, that's a word that would be used for something, as, as you would suggest, that was really cataclysmic. And, and so the destruction of the earth and all of humanity, with the exception of, of Noah and his wife and their children, that's, that's a cataclysm. That that's indeed meets the requirement of a cataclysm, not a regional flood. Uh, that the seed of the woman would come and bruise the serpent's head. Um, what's interesting, is there's a comment that, that Christ would be born of a virgin. Not everyone agrees that, that the, the description of the Messiah as the seed of the woman uh, necessarily points to the virgin birth. I've struggled with that. I've looked at it. But what's interesting is, if you look in the, the scriptures, 
it's not the seed of Sarah that's described. It's not the seed of Rebecca that's described. It's the seed of the patriarch that's described. So you've got the seed of Abraham and his seed. You've got Isaac and his seed and Jacob and his seed. And so for the, the Messiah to be pictured as a seed of a woman is, is singular in its way. It's, it's unusual. You, you simply don't find examples of the seed of the woman. You've, it's, it's, I could find no exceptions to this, and I looked through the, the book of Genesis, I looked through, I did a survey using a concordance, and I was looking at where did the seed is, is uniformly attached to the patriarch, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. And that's why you, God is described as the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, so for the seed of the woman to be the one through whom this uh, one would come that would ultimately destroy uh, the serpent, is it a prediction? Maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but it certainly is an intimation uh, that, 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 uh, that the virgin birth is, is exactly how the Messiah would come. I, I think it may be slightly an overstatement to say it was a prophecy per se. I wouldn't necessarily rule that out, but I'd say clearly it's an unusual construct. It's not the seed of Adam uh, through which the Messiah would come. It was the seed of the woman through which this would come and and would provide deliverance. Uh, But it would cause great pain and suffering for the seed of the woman to accomplish this. And that's exactly what happened for Messiah to come and to suffer the sins of this world and the rejection of this world and, and the, the hatred that was, was directed towards him and the venomous rejection that our Messiah personally experienced and then to, to ultimately uh, take upon himself the wrath of a holy God for those for whom he came to die and to suffer the, the, the ignominious death of, of, a, of being crucified publicly on a Roman thoroughfare, uh, that's, that's suffering. That's uh, Satan uh, thought he had a victory. Uh, but, of course, uh, at the resurrection, that, that victory was completely turned upside down, and, and Satan himself was utterly dis- uh, defeated at that point. Um, so, But all of this finds its basis, doesn't it, in the opening chapters of Genesis, everything we just talked about. If you take this out or you interpret it in some non-liberal fashion, uh, it, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, there is, I'll just read an excerpt here, this book by Abner Chown. Um, it, again, it's a compendium of different articles. One of them is by Will Varner, who was Jeff's mentor in, in school. But, but Varner is writing about a book that Francis Schaeffer wrote back in the 60s called Escape from Reason. And Escape from Reason is talking about uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, was describing uh, the, the way in which modern man is formulating convictions and he said there's an upper story and a lower story. He, would, he was using this example that the, the lower story are facts and circumstances, history, concrete reality. The upper story is faith and convictions. And, and what's happened is that um, in today's world, you've got people simply formulating their, their spiritual convictions without any historic basis or facts and circumstances. They, they, they're, they're forming their assessment of spiritual truth based upon what seems right to them, but it has no objective reality to, to support it. So there is no foundation. And, and the point that he's simply making is, is he's on to says the danger of all of this, uh, Schaefer does, says was the idea of exercising faith when there's no possibility of any historic basis for such faith. Uh, and that's what happens when you take the historic underpinnings of Genesis 
and you turn them into something non-liberal, you literally have eradicated your foundation. So you're holding to the doctrine that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so all died because all sinned in Romans 5.12. And you're saying, but, but the very foundation upon which that's predicated, you've eliminated by eliminating a historic Adam. And, and so as Schaefer would have these expressions like a space-time fall, that was his rather philosophical way of saying that there was literally an instance, if you'd been there with a camera, you could have seen Eve with, a, with an, a literal piece of fruit in her hand and you would see her taking a bite out of it and it was not some mythological construct. It happened. You could look at your watch and it, because time existed then. It didn't exist before, and you could say this happened at 12.45 in the afternoon. I mean, it, it occurred at a point in time, and it was history. It occurred in a place. If you had a GPS device, you could say it was right there. It's space-time history. The fall was real. It was not mythological. It's not some construct of someone's imagination. But you take all of that out, and suddenly then you start formulating your theology based upon wishful thinking, if, if you're honest. And, and that's what's happened to these people who take the opening chapters of Genesis in a non-liberal, non-ordinary fashion, and they still want to hold on to these very important theological truths about marriage, uh, about, about the, the inception of sin and judgment, um, about all these other doctrines that we talked about. But again, if you eliminate the, the factual nature of Genesis 1 through 11, you've just eliminated your foundation. You, you literally have, have obscured all of these things. So that really sort of summarizes uh, where we are at this point, and um, I'll just let you look at page 9 uh, and 10. That's a summary by uh, Joel Beakey and Michael Barrett. Uh, it's, it's important because everything that I've just said, there are four um, realities. One of them is the, these are constructs in the book of Genesis, creation, corruption, covenants, and then uh, crisis. What, what, what they mean by this is you have God's very clear revelation of creation. How did he bring into being all that exists in space and time and history? Did not exist before. Creation. Corruption, Genesis 3. Uh, what, it's, it, if we don't understand how sin entered the world and, and the, the basis for, for sin, and the fact that, that Adam, as our federal head, when he sinned, all of us proceeding from him by ordinary generation, as, as is described, fell in him and were as guilty as he was, even though we weren't physically present in the garden. But Adam is our federal head. When he took the, and sinned against uh, God, all of us literally fell in him and are equally um, culpable as Adam. And, it, and, and then thirdly, the covenants. You've got the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, uh, all of these other covenants. God is a covenant God. He, he, he operates on the basis of covenants with his people. And, and so you've got in Genesis 2 and following, uh, the word that is used for God in many, many cases is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Um, the Legacy Standard Bible uses the word Yahweh there. It's, it's for, for literally for centuries, people would look at it and they'd understand the same thing. Anytime you see your English Bible and it's got capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that means the covenant name of God. That, that's what that means. Capital L, O-R-D is the word Adonai. It means uh, the, the master, uh, the, the one who exercises dominion. But when you have capital O, capital O, capital L, O-R-D, 
That's Yahweh. That's that's God's covenant name, and that's the name that's very frequently used. And that's the, that's why he describes himself as the God, the, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he's their God. And then and so crisis is the opposition that occurs. And so the point that they're making is you see what happens when faithful people uh, encounter sinful people. Uh, Abel, uh, what what a tragedy! The first homicide, fratricide, to be exact. And, and so what did he do? He offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God, and his brother um, took exception to that, and his conscience uh, was obscured, obviously, but his countenance fell, and he took his own brother's life. Uh, Cain took his brother's life, first, first uh, taking of, of innocent life in the Scriptures. Uh, and then you've got Joseph, an example. If anyone was maltreated, it would be Joseph, who, who was uh, going to be sacrificed to, to make some money. And ultimately ended up as the, the king of, of Egypt, uh, through whom what, how did, what happened through Joseph? The deliverance of God's people. But look at the suffering that Joseph experienced on the way. Uh, literally imprisoned, uh, treated as, as a, 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 a chattel slave, um, but all of those things. And, and so it, it points forward, doesn't it, to what our Messiah did for us. The, the opposition that our, our Savior experienced on our behalf and ultimately provided deliverance for us, just like Joseph, a, a picture of Jesus, so to speak, in the Old Testament. But all of this is rooted in the book of Genesis, creation, a corruption, a covenants, and crisis. Um, and then at the very end of the handout uh, is something that I wish I had time to, to go through. Maybe we'll talk about it on another time, but it's an article by John Frame on the self-existence of God. Uh, and it, it you can read it about three or four times, and if your mind is still spinning trying to understand the, the, the concept of the self-existence of God, join the company. It's, um, there's an example. There's a pastor, Brian Borgman, a good man, and he was asking his, uh, his child going into Christian school, and um, I'll call him Ben. So, Ben, what did you learn today? God. So the next day, Ben, what did you learn? God. Three, three, three or four days long, what did you learn today? God. And so what, can you expand on that a little bit? What did you learn about God? He's incomprehensible. That's literally, it's a, you're, you're learning some awfully good stuff, Ben. It's incomprehensible. So to, to wrap your minds around the self-existence of God, the, the God who is utterly satisfied in himself, complete in himself, um, has always existed without any creation whatsoever, Maze, makes every other thing simply because he wants to, because it pleases him for his own glory, and he rules and reigns over it uh, perfectly. Um, it, it's a good article, but I, I, you'll, you'll end up scratching your head along the way a little bit if you're trying to fully understand the self-existence of God. The technical word is a seity, but it's the self-existence of God. So I, I share that with you, and, and we'll pick up here next, next time, Lord willing.